John 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And I'll be referring back to some of these verses here in a moment. How many of you have had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door before? All right, most of you. All right, we're going to be talking about the Jehovah's Witness heresy, or the one that I think is the, the scariest of, of their beliefs. But first of all, I'm going to give you kind of the background. There's, there's a story behind all of this, and I kind of want you to be aware of it. Um, so, some background. Oops, this is going backwards. There we go. Okay, so in the early 300s AD, there was a certain teacher named Arius, and he began teaching some things. That's on the screen here. He taught that the Word of God was not eternal with the Father. He taught that the Word was not God, but was created by God. And that if the Word was God and the Father was God, then there are two gods. We can't have two gods, and therefore the Word was not God. So this man named Arius, this is what he was teaching, and the bishop removed him because he was teaching these things. He considered them heretical. However, Arius had a lot of supporters. He had a lot of people who liked him. He was a good, he was an effective, I would say good teacher. He was an effective teacher. And so his ideas spread. So his, his teachings spread around so much that uh, the Emperor Constantine, he summoned all the bishops from all of the, the Roman world, and he wanted to sort out this disagreement before it seriously divided the church. It hadn't gotten everywhere yet, but it was a very strong disagreement. It was pretty serious. They had to deal with it. 
So this wasn't a minor point of doctrine. And so Constantine summoned all of them together, and this is what we know as the Council of Nicaea. It was in AD 325. Council of Nicaea. And there were about 300 bishops that gathered there. And most of them had just come out of lots of persecution. A lot of them bore scars of torture because of what they had been proclaiming. Most of them didn't know about the controversy or didn't know much about it. They were just happy to be together. This was the first time we had a great council like this, and so most of them were meeting each other for the first time. They were just glad to be together. It was, they heard, most of them heard that there was a controversy, and they thought, well, well, we'll, we'll find out some sort of compromise. We'll figure it out, but it's just good to be together, right? When the bishops heard the Arian position, they immediately rejected it. It wasn't a, well, it's got some merits, right? When they heard it, no. In fact, some of them shouted out, you lie, blasphemy, and heresy, even in the midst of it being presented to them. There's one story about how some of the bishops rushed the one who was presenting this error and ripped the paper out of his hand and tore it up right there. It's like, how could you even think this? So they came up with, because there was controversy, they came up with what we know today as the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed says in part what's on the screen. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. Okay? This Arian heresy needs to go away. We are putting it down on paper once for all that we do not believe this. Okay? Almost all the bishops signed the statement. Maybe one or two didn't. But one of those few, one of those few Arian bishops was a naval politician and Arianism still spread. Not everybody took to heart this Nicene Creed that was put out there. Next also is that subsequent emperors became Arian. And they exiled Orthodox bishops, the ones that were teaching the Nicene Creed. Arian missionaries went to the barbarian and Germanic tribes and converted them to Arianism. It spread more and more. By A.D. 350, a certain uh, church father named Jerome declared the whole world woke up and discovered that it had become Arian. It had spread that much that far. Um, from a human standpoint, I mean, we know God is the orchestrator of all things, but from a human standpoint, it's a miracle that the Orthodox Nicene Christian faith survived. There were a number of things that happened that were nothing short of miraculous that led to us believing what we believe today. 
The first thing that happened was the Aryan emperor suddenly died, just out of the blue, and it allowed all of the Orthodox bishops to return. Um, Something else that's very unique in history, when Rome fell to the Aryan barbarians, the conquerors converted to the conquered's faith. That almost never happens in history. When you conquer somebody, you convert them to your faith. This time it happened the reverse. It almost never happens that way, but it happened here. Arianism died out and was universally condemned for centuries and centuries afterwards. Um, Around this time, there was drafted the Athanasian Creed. And it says in part, look at how strongly this is put. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. All right? This is not trivial stuff. All right? This is not adiaphora. This is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. And it goes on. I encourage you to read that if you have not read it before. This was drawn up. You have to believe this to be saved. Well, there was in 1852 a man born by the name of Charles Taze Russell, And he decided that he didn't like any churches, any creeds, any confessions. He decided that he was going to just look at what the Bible said. He organized a Bible class. This Bible class elected him their pastor, or what they called their pastor. In 1879, the first issue of his magazine was released, and he called it The Watchtower. He concluded from his own study that Christ was a creature. He was a God, but not God. And lots of people had a lot of bad things to say about him but because of what he was teaching. So one of these people that was putting bad things out there, he sued one of them for defamation. And um, under cross-examination, Charles Taze Russell had to admit under oath, in a court, that he was not familiar with biblical Greek. He knew nothing about Latin or Hebrew. He had never taken a course in philosophy or systematic theology, and he left school at 14 years old. But he was putting these ideas out there. And his successors developed his ideology further, added more doctrines to it. Today, they are known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Look at John 1.1, whether ESV or NIV is the top, and their version of the Bible, known as the New World Translation. Look at the difference there. You can see quite clearly what they did there. Now, there is a friend of mine, I've known him for, oh, probably almost 25 years now, and um, he's a Jehovah's Witness, he's a Jehovah's Witness elder, 
and he and I have gone back and forth on tons of things, um, very, a lot of it being just this verse. And because he's a Jehovah's Witness elder, he has all this literature about Greek to throw at me, and when he started throwing this at me is when I realized, boy, this is why we take Greek in seminary, because we need to know and be able to defend these sorts of things. In short, it's, it's quite a stretch to translate in Greek from the grammar, a God versus the God. It's quite a stretch. They have extensive arguments for their translation. They rely on a lot of grammatical technicalities. They do the same with other verses that mention Jesus as God or might infer that. What I want to leave you with today, though, is this. Even if we gave them the benefit of the doubt and their stretching of translations was, even if we gave them the validity of that, even if we granted that, even if we did, Jesus' divinity is so interwoven into the whole witness of Scripture that it would be impossible to come up with any other conclusion. At least for someone who knows Scripture in its entirety. Christ's deity doesn't rest on a handful of verses, but is implied throughout the whole fabric of the Bible. That's why there's a man named David Reed, who um, was a Jehovah's Witness, and he decided, he was challenged actually, why don't you read the Bible as much as you do the Watchtower magazine? And so he decided to take up that challenge. So he started to read their Bible, and over time as he read the Bible, he said, I started to just fall in love with Jesus Christ. And this guy is a Christian today, an Orthodox Nicene Christian. From their Bible, he came to the true faith. If Jesus is not fully God, tons of problems arise if you are trying to be faithful to all of Scripture. I have six things here, all right? If Jesus isn't God, all of this stuff falls apart. The first one, if he created all things, how can he be created himself? It says, through him, all things were made, in verse 3. Without him was not anything made that was made. Okay? If he was made, how could he have made everything that was made? That doesn't make sense. If you look in their Bible, it still reads that way. But they conveniently will gloss over that. Look at a call to worship verse. Colossians 1 verse 15, it says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't say the first of creation. It says the firstborn of creation. There's something different about him. Second thing, verse 18. Let's look at that again. No one has ever seen God. Stop there. No one has ever seen God. That in itself is a very radical, bold claim. 
for John to make in the, in the scriptures that he is writing about in the Old Testament. Because if no one has ever seen God, then who did Moses see? Who did Moses see? Or quite a few other ones, too. But Exodus 33, verse 11, there's other verses we could talk about, but thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Who did Moses see? They won't be able to answer that. We could also talk about more people who were said to have seen God. We have Hagar. We have Jacob, who wrestled with God at Peniel. We have the people of Israel within the fire, and the people of Israel within the cloud. Samson's parents. If no one has ever seen God, then you have one of two options with that statement. You either have to conclude that the Old Testament is wrong, or you have to conclude that God the Son appeared to all of these people in the Old Testament. And that's what John is saying. None of, nobody has ever seen the Father. It was never the Father. The whole time it was the Son who was God revealing himself to us. We don't, we've never seen the Father. We've seen the Son. It was the Son the whole time. Third thing, verse 18 no one has ever seen God. The only God, and in the ESV there's a number right by there, and if you go to the bottom, or the only one who is God, son manuscripts, the only son, basically the only begotten son. In fact, that is how their Bible translate it, the only begotten son. Okay? If Christ is the only begotten Son of God, then by definition, he would have all the qualities of his Father. All right? When you beget something, it is the same essence as you. It is the same kind of thing as you. You and I, we might build houses or create art, but we beget other human beings. The kids that you have would be, are just as human as you are. They have all the qualities that you have. Humans beget humans. Armadillos beget armadillos. God begets God. If Jesus is the Son of God, then he has all of the same qualities that his Father does. They can't answer that. The only way that they try to get around this is they try to change the subject. Well, we think that they're different people. I'm not saying they're different people or they're not saying they're not different people. We believe that they're different people. But he has the same essence as his father. He's the same kind of being. How is Jesus our mediator if he does not fully represent both parties? That falls apart. It says in those passages up there that Jesus is our mediator. But how is he mediating for us if he doesn't fully represent us and God? If he's not fully God, he can't fully represent God to us. That falls apart. Jehovah does not share glory. But Jesus shares the Father's glory. 
Look at what it says here, Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, their version Jehovah. That is my name, my glory I give to no other. Look at what Jesus says. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, Jehovah doesn't share glory, but Jesus shares that glory. He has to be God. One more. Only Jehovah is Savior, it says in Isaiah 43, 11. But Jesus is Savior. And those are just some of the verses that talk about Jesus as Savior. I, ra- I ran out of room coming up with all of those. There's lots more. But look at this. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I am Jehovah, their version, and besides me, there is no Savior. But look at what it says in just one of these. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. If Jesus isn't Jehovah, this falls apart. We could go on. In fact, fact, if Jehovah's Witness comes to you, I would encourage you not to get in the grammatical stuff about the Greek and the translations and stuff like that. That is a rabbit hole that they want to that they might want to drag you down. Go to the basic stuff, like one of the things that I just threw up there. Like Jesus being the Son of God. He would have all the qualities that his Father would by definition, unless you say he's not the Son of God, but they would say he's the Son of God. That doesn't add up. Jesus has given Jehovah's titles, like I Am, or the Righteous One, or the Holy One. Jesus has worshipped in the Bible. No other creature is worshiped in Scripture, but Jesus is. Jesus has authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. God alone treads the waves of the sea, it says in Job 9, verse 8, and yet Jesus walks on water, which was something Peter couldn't do by himself. There's more. Okay, Maybe you're thinking, Pastor Aaron, this is, this is nice, but um, why does this matter to me? Like, why should I, why do I have to know this? Is this just something for Sunday school classes and maybe, maybe seminary and stuff like that, right? Well, this is more than a doctrinal technicality because the Jehovah's Witness error undermines the entire gospel message. The whole gospel message falls apart if Jesus is not God. It collapses. Let's, I'm going to show you the catechism here. Let's answer this together. Why must he, our mediator, be truly human and truly righteous? God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin but a sinner could never pay for others. Another one, why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And who is this mediator? True God and at the same time truly human and truly righteous. Our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who was given us to set us completely free and to make us right with God. So, going back, why must he be true God? If he wasn't fully God, he could not bear the full weight of sin. Only God could carry an infinite amount of weight. Jesus had to be God or he could not bear the weight of sin. That is what I want you to realize. The weight of our sin rests on Jesus' divinity. If he wasn't fully God, then we would have to meet him halfway. We'd have to be saved by works. That is a big problem. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is simply a perfect human. He's not God. He is quasi-God. He's, a, he's the highest of angels. I want you to look at this. This is from their literature. This is about how you know if you're saved or not from their literature. Look at this. If you can read that, I'm going to read it for you. Far more is required than simply saying, I believe in Jesus or I accept Jesus as my Savior. Certainly accepting and exercising faith in Jesus as our ransomer is necessary, but the salvation through him comes only to those who conform to the conditions on which it is offered. We have mentioned some of those conditions. A person must know of and have faith in Jehovah, accept his word, recognize the operation of his spirit. That's code for acknowledging the watchtower as God's agent on earth. Repent and be baptized. Once or excuse me, when once a person has met these conditions, salvation is possible. Then to the question, are you saved? He can give the truthful reply, yes, thus far I am saved. If you take away Jesus' divinity, you don't know if you're saved or not. You have to hope that you're meeting all of the conditions for salvation that God has put out there you better hope you're good enough because Jesus hasn't fully paid for all your sins. Jesus is God. He is fully God. He has borne the full weight of our sins. He has met all of the conditions that are needed for our salvation. If your faith is in him, you're good. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. If your faith is in him, you're good, you're saved, and you can say, I am saved, no asterisks. I am saved. All right, one more thing, just a final thought I want to leave you with. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you believe that God sent a minion, a subordinate. God sent someone else to save us, to be among us. But if you believe in the true God from Scripture, God didn't send someone else to save us. He came himself. God himself came to be among us. God himself went to the cross for us and our salvation. God himself rose again. God himself walked 
this earth and dwelt among us. He didn't send someone else. He loves us enough that he came himself for us and for our salvation. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Lord Jesus, even though you were fully God and remained fully God, you came into this world so that we could be saved, that we could know that we are saved and have full confidence that we are saved. We thank you for that. We pray, O Lord, that our confidence would rely on you, Jesus, even as you are fully God. And Lord, that you would give us words to speak to those who are, who are deceived, who are misguided, who are misled, so that they would know your salvation even as we do. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.